This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Game Generation. Unlock the power of play, learn and connect at www.gamegeneration.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Video games have become a catalyst for nonprofit fundraising, a refuge for disabled communities, platforms for protests, and forums for global conflict resolution. They connect the world of politics, technology, entertainment, and sports in profound and unique ways. And competitive gaming has become a billion dollar industry. Leagues and professional esports teams across the world draw millions of fans and big sponsor dollars. On February 6th, The Washington Post sat down with video game experts, creators, and players to explore this rapidly evolving world. Video games are being used to bring communities together and engender compassion. In this segment, we'll hear from a roundtable of experts about the different ways video games can influence individuals and society at large. Let's listen. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Uh, Thanks so much for coming. Uh, I'm Gene Park, uh, and I cover video games and gaming culture for The Washington Post part of the whole launcher program that you just heard about uh, that just uh, came out in October. Thank you so much for all of you for being here. We have an amazing group of folks from like different corners of, of the gaming sphere, the gaming universe, to talk about how the industry is influencing uh, culture at large. I personally like to call it the rock and roll of the new millennium. Um, so in- introducing, uh, introducing the, the, the panel here, we have Congresswoman uh, Susan Del Betty from the great state of Washington. Um, representing um, the first congressional district. Uh, we have Lua Mayen, who is a video game developer, CEO, and founder of Juno Games. Uh, we have Anita Sarkeesian, who is the founder of Feminist Frequency and a media critic. And finally, we have uh, Mr. Ryan Green, also a game, game developer and the founder and creator of uh, the game that you just saw up there, That Dragon Cancer. Um, one, one, and that was a clip from the Game Awards. So before we begin, uh, thank, you, thank you so much for, all, for you all coming here, coming from different parts of the country. I want to let our audience here and people tuning in online, hey chat, uh, that you can tweet questions using hashtag post live, and I'll pose them to our panel later in the segment. I'll be getting them right here in this little iPad. So let's get started. Um, well, I want to start with you first. Um, you were featured at the Game Awards uh, last December, um, and, and you, where you announced your new game, Salam, which means peace. Uh, your journey to video games is particularly unique. Um, you know, your, your status as a refugee and everything. Can you tell us about how you came about to found Genome Games? We have yeah, time. Uh, for sure. Um, thank you for having me today. Uh, you know, video games are a very amazing medium that we can use to bring people together around the world. and. Uh, the first time I got into video game, I, I never knew anything about video game. And one of the lines I always say is that I never thought that video game are created by people. I thought they fall from heaven. Because like, like where I grew up, I, I spent 22 years in a refugee camp. And where, because my family left South Sudan because of the war. So when I was growing up in a refugee camp, and with the journey that my family has taken for years, and I was born on the way as my family was going to the refugee camp, and all they wanted was to find a place of peace where they can be able to have like, you know, peace of mind and, you know, and have their children and everything. And it wasn't an easy journey. So growing up in a refugee camp, I remember one day I, I told my mother and said, like, I want to buy a computer. And she was like, what are you going to do with a computer? Because like, there's no power, there's, there's nothing, there's no school, there's nothing that you can do to be able to learn how to actually program and so on. And being in a refugee camp wasn't like, 
a place where someone deserved to be there. But for me, I had a passion to be a programmer. And she spent three years looking for $300 to, to buy for me a computer. So when she bought for me a computer, I went to an internet cafe where I walked three hours per day to go and charge my computer. And then somebody installed for me a video game called Grand Theft Auto. Oh. Um, so, Which one? Three, uh, four, five? No. So I think that's like uh, three. And then, uh, so when I came back home in a refugee camp, I started playing the game, and I realized the power of game, that people can be able to like make decisions whenever they are playing. You know, I'm from South Sudan. It's, it's a country that is ripped by civil war. And I realized, what can I be able to do to be able to make game for peace and conflict resolution? I never knew anything, so I had to train myself how to make my game. So I made my first video game in a refugee camp so that I can have children in a refugee camp have something to play. And then from there, I started like making Salam, which is coming in, uh, in, in the summer, actually. So it's a game that actually put a player in the shoes of a refugee, because what we're looking at is that people have to understand the journey of the refugee. And when you're playing game, as you're making decision, you're taking a refugee from a war-torn country to a peaceful environment. And all the experiences in the game, it's about my life, it's about my mother, how she struggled. And in the game, as you're going to your final destination, as you're going to win the game, you have to like feed your character so that they have the energy, give them food, and give them medicine so that they can go to the final destination. And what happened is that the, the more impactful way in the game that when actually someone buy food in the game, you are buying someone in a refugee camp food using in-app purchases. If you buy water in the game, you're actually buying someone in a refugee camp water. So it's a game that actually connect the virtual world and the reality on the ground. So like we are using the medium and the game industry to be able to give back and make people understand what is the journey, what does it take for someone to become a refugee. And, and, and that's amazing. And one of the things I always tell people is that when people play the game today and in the next 10 years, they're going to be in a position where they can make decisions and then they actually understand what the journey is. And, and, and that's why I love video games. They're amazing, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you just want people to empathize with the plight of a Yeah, the, the empathy is the most important thing because it engages people. One thing, I was playing a game with my friend and my friend killed my character. You know how I told him? I was like, why did you kill me? I didn't tell him, why did you kill my character? It was part of my life. It was part of something that I make the decision and, and work for it, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, what has the response been to your game so far? Like when people see what it, they're doing, that they're directly helping refugees? It's, it's, it's been amazing. It's, it's been really great because um, it's something new, which is a challenge, and for us to like execute that. Uh, so what we're doing is partnering with organization and, and uh, partnering with people in the game industry that has been in the journey. And that has been really amazing to see our game studios and helping us and supporting us through the journey, and it's, it's been amazing. Someone uh, one day called me and I, he said that when I see my, my son playing your game and having in-app purchases, helping someone in a refugee camp, it's not like playing a Fortnite and you know, all this stuff, right? But like, people really understand what games are and how we can be able to help, and we can impact the world and make a world a better place, yeah. It's amazing to recontextualize in-app purchases in that way. It's, it's I, I, pretty incredible. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks so much, Luol. <laughs> yeah. Congresswoman, let's, start, let's go with you now. Before serving in Congress, you worked in business, software development, and at Microsoft for over a decade. <clears throat> You've also talked about playing video games with your son. I know that you play Golf Story because uh, the Congresswoman was here for a Twitch program last year, 
and she destroyed political reporter Dave Weigel <laughs> in the golf story. Like it was like like not even like a like a competition. Um, but as a tech industry veteran, a parent, a woman, and a lawmaker, how have you seen video games involve? Well, I think um, it's a medium. Mm -hmm. And just as you talked about how you were able to take this and use it to convey a message and to engage people, I think that's also how we should think about the opportunities when we look at games. It's a chance for folks to learn and be engaged. Sometimes learn when they don't know they're learning, because we sometimes learn the best when we're having fun and not, don't realize um, that we're being educated as part of it. It's a way to bring people together. And um, so the creativity that's been unlocked as more people get engaged has been really interesting. And I think the work that um, you're doing has really shown that. Um, and it is, uh, it's, there's an approachability to technology that I think is important. You have uh, somebody who can maybe engage in a game that doesn't use technology as much and gets engaged and involved. And we find that um, when it comes to helping People learn to code, for example, making a game. Things like Hour of Code were a way of kind of making it a game, and people all of a sudden realized they were programming and they didn't know that. Um, the ability to kind of engage both um, technology and creativity is so important when you have the artists who are working on games and the creativity that's involved, because we know great innovation happens when people think out of the box, and creativity is a big part of that. We talk about STEM education, but we talk about STEAM, and I think when we talk about the types of products that come um, here, that interface, that interaction um, is so important, mm -hmm. and those are helpful in a lot of other ways going forward. So, um, But I do think the ability to tell a story, to engage communities in that story, to help people um, um, get to know each other in a different ways, I think is an incredible opportunity that is we're seeing more and more of now. Glad you brought up STEM, STEM education because a few years ago you hosted an event uh, for Teach a Girl to Tech Day and you played Mario Kart with elementary and middle Not school. Not as good at Mario Kart as I was at Golf Story. <laughs> yeah. And so, how can prom gaming promote uh, uh, women in, in STEM related fields? Um, well, because of that, engaging folks in ways that they may not expect. I think sometimes you go in a room and you sit down, and um, it has been technology traditionally has been sometimes intimidating. And when you allow someone individually to get engaged and involved, to um, maybe get a pro to find it to be approachable because it's something you're interested in. As I said, you learn without um, realizing it, and then you start to have ideas and maybe talk to other people about it and have the opportunity then to maybe get more involved and realize there are opportunities there. Young women in particular, I think, have always kind of felt that there weren't as many opportunities in technology, and we find when you let them have that opportunity to engage and find ways that are interesting for them, um, you break down those barriers. Mm -hmm. And I think we have the opportunity for people to engage with technology in ways that are comfortable with them. It might be the different type of game they choose, yeah. et cetera, mm -hmm. that helps get them engaged and involved. And, um, and then their great ideas are things that we can see in the future. And the diversity of folks who are involved in building different technology and building games, that diversity gives us the diversity of opportunities and, and um, experiences that we're starting to see unlocked because more, lots of people are coming together, not just a smaller group, but from um, across the country, but also around the world. Mm -hmm. Engagement is important. You yes. want to be able to learn. Um, I definitely didn't want to learn math, but had to. So. But sometimes you learn and you don't know you're learning. And yeah, that's exactly. Well, that's, that's the, the best, best part, way. right? Yes. Um, Anita, I think this is a good opportunity to bring you in and talk about culture. Uh, even backstage, we were talking about how your work 
has been about the broader culture, not even just about video games. But how has your work as a media critic through feminist frequency uh, helped open up dialogue in terms of uh, female perspectives uh, in the video game industry in particular? <laughs> I know there's a long history there, so. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, which side of that would you like to hear? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I think that, um, well, what was it, eight years ago now, I launched a series that looked at the way women were represented in video games, particularly the bad ways women are represented in gaming. Um, there's a very long history of misogyny and racism and transphobia and homophobia in gaming, and the work that I do as a feminist media critic is to try to find those patterns and show people that they exist and give them tools for how to move forward and how to make games better. Mm. Um, it was received... Uh, <laughs> Uh, there was a, a lot of people very angry at me, if uh, we want to be kind about it. Um, asterisk, asterisk. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but the, the part that I'm more interested in than all of the hate was that um, the industry itself, many people in the industry itself, um, were really engaged with the work. Um, they were very hungry to learn more, to, you know, it, one of the, the best things that I heard was developers would come up to me at events and say, hey, you critiqued my game and I'm so glad you did and I'm not going to do that again, mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to have a damsel in my game. I'm not going to use a woman's body as a reward for players. Um, and, and that, all of that allowed us to start moving forward as an industry in some ways to talk about, like, what do we want out of our games? What do those look like? Um, what, what? whose stories are worth telling and how do we tell them? And the other side of that is who gets to tell those stories? Who gets hired? Who gets the opportunity to make games? And what does that look like? And so um, in addition to my work, I think that there has been a huge opening in the last decade of feminist, intersectional feminist media critics talking about this across industry mm -hmm. um, and, and really being able to have that perspective amplified in a way that previously was kind of stuck in academia or in smaller communities. Yeah, always with these like ludonarrative type like discussions or whatever, right? mm -hmm. it kind of broke out into the mainstream. Um, given of what you've seen since then and these conversations that you've been having, that you've been having how hopeful are you? Like, where do you think we are today? Um, I, it sounds like there's been some, like the needle has moved a little bit, but yeah, of you know. course. I mean, I think it depends on what day you ask me that question. You know, yeah. it is it's it's one of those. You know, everyone wants to hear that things are getting better, and they don't want to hear that it's not. The reality is, a lot of things are getting worse globally, politically, um, and that video games are a part of that space where we're having these massive cultural wars about like retaining and holding on to the status quo are really working towards a progressive future that is liberatory for everybody. Mm. And video games were one of the, the first mainstream arenas in which that war kind of erupted out of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some ways it's worse. I think that the communities, the, the hateful, aggressive, vitriolic communities are more emboldened and empowered to spread hate. Um, and in other ways, I think that there is such a conversation blooming that developers are really trying to do better. And, and I have seen some of that progress over the years mm -hmm. um, where, you know, bringing in consultants or, or, or being mindful of hiring practices or, you know, taking, like, if, if a particular aspect of a game is critiqued, correcting it without defensiveness, without, you know, all of it. Um, and so in that way, I think we are seeing some progress, but it does feel a little bit like one step forward, two steps back. Mm -hmm. A lot of it has to do with the, the onus is on the developers, but is there an onus on the audience too as well? 
you know, like they're, they're as consumers, right? Sure. I mean, uh, the audience cannot be terrible yeah. <laughs> to to other to, to developers and other folks. I think um, I think that for me, it's important that the the public and and game players and and media consumer or media people who engage with media in general um, have the tools to be able to interpret what they are engaging with. And I think, like you're saying earlier, that we learn the most when we don't think we're learning. Mm -hmm. And media is one of those air arenas where we don't think we're learning. So what are the messages and values embedded in our media that we are passively taking in on you know day to day, decade after decade, for example? And that's what I like to do. I like to give people the language to just identify it. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily don't play that game. You know, I kind of scoffed when you talked about Grand Theft Auto, but it's not necessarily like don't play that game. It's play it, but be aware of what's in it. Be, you know, have your brain kind of turned on and engage with it. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's, you know, we have a motto at Feminist Frequency, be critical of the media you love, really trying to give permission to folks to have that kind of complicated relationship with media. And I think mm -hmm. that's how we move forward. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And I think that's a great uh, uh, way to kind of pivot to Ryan and the, the kind of messages that you put out there, um, specifically that Dragon Cancer. For anyone who might not know, can you just talk about the game in general? Yeah, sure. Um, Dot Dragon Cancer was um, a poetic retelling of uh, the life of our family and uh, our third son, my wife and I, Amy's third son, Joel, who was diagnosed with cancer, uh, uh, a very aggressive brain cancer when he was one year old. Um, and despite um, uh, the terminal diagnosis that he received when he was two years old, he lived for um, uh, four more years. Uh, and so in that span of time, we endeavored to create this video game that reflected the, um, his life and, and reflected our personal and spiritual journey. Um, and so, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a culture that told me that the culture, uh, a subculture that told me the broader culture would hate me for my, my faith. Um, and as Christians, you know, we wanted to share with people the, 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 the love and the power of God. And, and in the midst of this struggle, we thought, wow, what if we could tell this video game story about being helpless, being um, having things out of our control and the miracle that was happening in Joel's life? Mm -hmm. What if Joel lived? And um, you know, you think often of video games are, are spoken of as power fantasies, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, um, and so in that sense, we almost went into it with a power fantasy of our own. You know, what would it look like if God showed up in the way that we dictated, and the world could see that. Um, unfortunately, Joel passed away in 2014, and um, and what started out as this story that we were hoping to tell of a miracle became Joel's memorial. Um, and but what was amazing is that that culture that we told that was you know that I grew up believing was going to reject us embraced us. Uh, they made room for us. At every level of the games industry and the broader culture in general, they, they made space for us to tell our story. Um, it, it wasn't a, a story of power, it was a story of, of helplessness, and it was, but it was still a story of hope. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that the common thing that, that I see in this culture is that we all feel a little hopeless and helpless and that things are swirling that are out of our control, that violently want to destroy us, you know? Um, and so what we experienced in, in, in releasing this game was um, a moment where uh, 
that people chose to love us in the midst of our weakness. And so, you know, it's, um, it, was a, it was a privilege <laughs> to be able to have that experience. And I know that uh, many people don't, especially people on this stage. Um, but um, it, it was a glimmer to me of, of something that we could endeavor to when we uh, consume and create our media because we love video games and, and, and believe that it is a medium in which we can um, introduce ourselves and that I can learn more about you and we can have a conversation about who we are. I just want to mention also that Dead Dragon Cancer is available for playing outside an arcade. So if you guys want to check out this beautiful game, you should definitely check it out. Um, just You saw the art. It looks amazing. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask you one more thing before we get to some audience questions too. Um, what kind of stories have you told, like, like what have been told to you in terms of like how it's helped, it might have helped people process their grief and their, their own sorrow? Oh, um, or how has that made you feel? How well, I, I think one of the things that, that struck me the most in going into the industry is how many people would just, um, I believe it was uh, Jerry Holkins, one of the founders of, of, of PAX, he, he told me at the first PAX event, he's like, you traded in a currency of intimacy and people wanted to pay you back. And so what ended up happening is that we would be in these conventions with, if you've ever been to a consumer convention, it's 100,000 people mm -hmm. all in costume, right, um, <laughs> of their favorite characters and, and just, cons um, just hungry for their favorite games. And we were there in the midst hugging each other. They were telling us stories of their lives. They were telling stories of the children that they had lost, um, the family members that had gone before them. And, and we shared an intimacy that was rather peculiar in that context. And so I think that this game has given us permission to talk about hard things long after people stop asking about them. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Uh, we have a question from Katie on Facebook. Katie, thanks so much for watching. Uh, have you all have, and this is for uh, any of you, uh, by the way, uh, have you had uh, heard of any games for the elderly and for those uh, with dementia? Um, is that something that, that, that that we know about, I haven't heard. No, of. but I believe that one of the speakers coming on later might know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can we can address that later. Uh, and here is the other question: uh, What responsibility does the gaming community have to address issues like the addictive nature of video games and also violence as well? Sorry, the what nature? The, what what responsibility uh, does the gaming community have to address issues like the addictive nature of video games, video game addiction, basically? Um, any hmm. thoughts on that? Uh, I would like to say that when I examine myself and I look at my consumer behavior, right, I find that I am reliant on subscription services to consume my media, mm -hmm. right? And so I am part of, um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the, that, when a business looks at that, they're looking at like, how do I optimize, right? Like, how do I optimize for people playing? How do I optimize for retention? How do I optimize for, um, for any of those things. And so you'll see that the designs follow that, right? Like they have to optimize so that they can continue to run, right? And with prices being continued to press down because we want everything for less, um, it becomes more and more difficult for a diversity of voices to be included in the industry. So I'm not here to say that we should get rid of those things. I like gaming, I like gambling sometimes. I like things that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, could be addictive. Um, so there's that as a consumer I have to be aware of. But I think if our industry believes in the medium that we love, that we should be investing in the things that will diversify voices, 
Um, and that's not just about all the typical spheres that we talk about, but it's also age, and it's also um, you know, where we are in our time of lives and the type of stories that we're telling as we grow older. I'm 40, almost 40, and I grew up with video games. The stories I'm interested in are way different mm -hmm. than they were when I was 18. Mm -hmm. um, but the audience hasn't quite, uh, they're still a few years off, you know? And so I think that if we invest in the future, um, in, in being a patron of the arts in that way, that I think we're gonna see a continued growth. I think as a consumer, it kind of reminds me of what Anita just said too, about being a more critical uh, uh, reader, essentially, right? Um, and being critical of what you love and making sure that you don't get addicted to it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to say anything because I don't, I'm not, there's a lot of research and work being done in the field of game. Yeah, and I, right I also now, don't want to use not, addiction as like, yeah. like yeah. As, as too much word either. Too. Yeah, and it's not yeah. an area of study that I'm, I'm, I feel like I can speak to, but I think that it is, it is real and that we should provide um, or we should have mechanisms of support as we would with any other kind of um, issue that might arise. And if it's something specifically happening in games, then you know, we should definitely be conscious and aware of that and provide those tools. I'm gonna shamelessly plug something right now, actually, because it sort of doesn't smoothly go, but I'm doing it anyways. <laughs> um, because I've been thinking a lot about how do we support each other in the games community. Mm -hmm. um, last year, Me Too hit the games industry where several women and non-binary folks came out around um, abusive men in the industry, and at Feminist Frequency, we were like, well, crap. What are we going to do? Because we know something about toxicity, and we know something about video games, and we decided to launch a, a couple of initiatives. And so we're about to launch a hotline. Um, it's the Games and Online Harassment Hotline, and it is for anyone in the orbit of games, whether you're a player, a competitor, a developer. Um, it is a professionally staffed hotline that is there for folks when they need it. So if it is around issues of addiction or you're having a hard time at work with crunch or whatever it might be, we will be there to support you and provide referrals to other, um, other networks and resources that are familiar with games specifically. Um, and that's not live yet, but you can get information for it at gameshotline.org. Wow. I was awesome. just gonna add, we have to remember how to engage um, at people to people again. It's not just gaming. Um, most people are on their phones right now. Probably a lot of folks in the audience have their, their phones too. You can be in a room where you're supposed to be talking to people and people are sitting there um, not actually interacting. And so there's a cultural aspect that we have to think about of the value of actually true you know, face-to-face -face communication, talking to each other again, um, understanding how, those, how important those connections are. And, and it's, that's, I think, a, a broader issue than just gaming alone, but I think mm -hmm. it's something that's happening in our culture in a lot of different ways that we should be very conscious of. Yeah, I miss people's faces, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last question, and just a kind of lightning round, it's a lighter one. Uh, what games uh, for good have inspired you, basically? Or what, what games have made you feel good? You could start with Sorry. Congresswoman, you can start <laughs> well, with you. I just was, uh, we were talking about Golf Story earlier. Yeah. I mean, um, for me, it's that fun of that, that combination of being able to like play Golf Story with my son to sit with someone and play mm -hmm. and engage. It could be um, online or it could be just sitting in a room with someone. Um, I think there's that opportunity to, to do something fun where you can have a little bit of competition back and forth. Uh, and, and that's, you know, lighthearted and engaging. Um, 
And so there's many different types of games out there. I don't spend a lot of time, um, I don't get a lot of time to play. Um, but You're not I, that busy, it's uh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I think those are the things for me that um, that kind of fit that, that mix that are fun to do. And that aren't, because uh, a lot of gaming can be, back to the kind of, comment can be uh, hugely time consuming. And so being able to do something, engage and dis disconnect and be done, um, I think that's a nice thing versus feeling like you have to you know, stay on it forever. We, have to, we actually have a question for Lawal, and I guess okay. this will be the last one then. Uh, can you discuss more about the specific ways video games can help build peace, reduce ethnic conflict, especially in the international context? Wow. <laughs> big question. Uh, yeah. big question. <laughs> and you have two Can minutes. you save us? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really a big question for me because um, it's also an area of my, uh, my focus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, I feel like true peace is something that is built over time. And it's, um, we are an industry that is defined by people that love what they want to play. And uh, to me, when, when we design games, more games should be more on stories and letting people understand really what are the causes of war? What, are, what does it mean to live in a peaceful environment? So the more you play that, it, it gives you that idea of like having that peace of mind and understanding the stories of what are the, what are the causes of war, what can, what can we be able to do to respond to such kind of war. I, I have a game that is more, that actually help people to really respond, how do they understand peace? How do they understand war? How do they respond when there's war somewhere? So, so it bring people together and discuss about war and conflict and, and put their own input on how they can be able to resolve conflict. So I feel like games are really powerful tool to be able to like really help people think about that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, we got two yeah. more questions, I guess. So basically, <laughs> well, we'll continue. Oh, go ahead, Ryan. Well, I was just gonna say, I mean, the thing that I've most noticed about joining the games industry mm -hmm. uh, professionally is all the people that I've met that are not like me. Exactly. Um, and so like, uh, that, for one, has caused me to treat people like humans rather than groups, right? And I think that the more we do that and the more that our work both gets people next to each other on the couch playing games together yeah. or in their favorite sport, eSports, playing games together or sharing their stories through this medium, the more we will humanize each other, I hope. Anita, anything else you'd like to add? Um, I, I think I'm excited. You're, you're asking about... Um, games that were interesting yeah and I, my brain always good. just goes blank whenever anyone asks me about games yeah. <laughs> like specific games and I, I i'm hopeful by games like um ryan's and and folks who can do things that are different um that i get so excited when we see games that are pushing boundaries that are trying new things um that are telling different stories in different ways because the thing about games is that they're so unique they're unlike any other form of media we have. And I would love to see this industry, and I'm, I'm enjoying watching this industry, experiment with what it means to use that interactivity and storytelling to make impacts. And Games for Good can be everything from like, you know, we're gonna educate you on a very specific, you know, conflict or issue or what have you, but it can also be, um, you know, it, it can be a queer woman of color who gets to go into space. Right, as the main protagonist, and that like girls get to play that growing up, for example. And so I'm I'm excited about the the range that we're slowly starting to see in this space. Okay, well that's about all the time we have for tonight. 
The four of you, thank you so much for coming all the way out here to DC and to our newsroom uh, to talk about this. It's been such a pleasure to have you all here. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.